Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Up, up and away. Whether it's stocks or high-yield bonds or Bitcoin, investors are having a tough time finding assets they don't want to buy. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Equity markets continue to move higher this week for the most part, pushing up against records, blowing hot and cold on the reflation trade, and leaving bond yields to stay range-bound, even as high-yield spreads set new record lows. But are we moving too far and too fast? Some warn about the risk of inflation, but Fed Chair Jay Powell downplays that possibility. There could be some upward pressure on prices there. Again, though, uh, I, I, my expectation would be that, that that will be neither large nor sustained. You know, in major part, we are looking at actual inflation. We want to see actual inflation. And to take us through a week when the markets just seem to go up and up, we welcome now a roundtable of Asani Beschloss. She is the CEO of Rock Creek and Steve Ratner. He is the chairman of Willett Advisors. They invest the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael R. Bloomberg. He, of course, is the founder and principal shareholder of Bloomberg LP. So welcome to both of you. Asani, let me start with you. As I said, it looks like right now the equity markets, by and large, just go up. How do you invest into that market as a practical matter? Because it looks like we're investing almost in the government, in fiscal and monetary policy, and some vaccine, not in the companies themselves. You're absolutely right, David. It has been seeming like that. But there are many new players in the uh, equity markets, as we've seen also in the last two, um, several months, several uh, in the last year, as the power of the retail investor has become also very different. 
The interesting thing that is going on with the institutions, though, is that as they saw last year, uh, some of them were sitting a little bit on the side of the market, and uh, they're seeing that momentum is very important. And that's why you're seeing not just the retail, but big institutions also keeping uh, additions to their equities. The only thing I would say, David, though, is I think actually stock picking is coming back and it's not just going to be the index funds that will matter. In fact, if anything, it will be much more important to choose stocks, even though you have this kind of momentum. So Steve, you have a lot of money that you have to put to work. Uh, Do you agree with that? Or is Warren Buffett right that basically for most investors, you should just be betting the market? I actually probably agree a little bit more with Warren Buffett as far as individual investors are concerned. But let me just go back and agree with uh, what Afsani just said and add a little bit of uh, how we think about it. Uh, First, I think I think when you talk about the vex, uh, what the government's doing and the stimulus and all that, I think what's really put a floor under this market are interest rates. And as uh, when the S&P dividend yield is higher than the interest rate on the 10-year, it's easy for people to say, well, why wouldn't I just take the S&P dividend plus hopefully some appreciation and so forth. And so when we think about the market, one of the things we keep an eye on is whether interest rates are going to start to rise. High interest rates are the enemy, are the enemy of the market. Um, in terms of the valuations and it going up and up, uh, uh, interestingly, corporate profits have held up surprisingly well during this period. And in fact, in this current earnings season that we're right in the middle of now, something like 70 or even 75% of companies are beating expectations. And so there are real earnings coming through uh, for, many, for many of these companies. And the third thing I'd say is that as we talk to our managers, and most of our money, uh, as you know, is managed by specific specialized funds that have a specific area of of interest, um, we have have rarely seen so much enthusiasm, uh, bullishness, if you want to call it that, about the market. In addition to what I said about interest rates and so forth uh, and earnings coming through, what our managers are seeing is this $1.6 trillion of pent-up demand of, of excess savings, of dry powder, whatever you want to call it, that Jason Furman and Larry Summers has talked about this a bit as well that many of us expect to become unleashed uh, as the virus becomes uh, less of a fact, people get vaccinated and start to go out and have uh, all the things uh, to do that they didn't get to do and now want to do and the cash to do it. Afsani, push together two things that Steve just talked about. One is Larry Summers and Jason Furman. Also, I'll add Olivia Bonchard. Warning, actually, about the possibility of inflation coming back as we keep pumping money into the economy and the interest rates being the enemy of the market. Is there a risk as an investor? Do you need to take that into account, a risk that inflation may drive up interest rates and change the complexion of the market? Absolutely. That, that is something that we watch very, that's something we watch very, very closely. Uh, as you know, actual reported inflation at the moment is incredibly subdued. There was just a number the other day. Uh, and there's really no sign of, of anything, but, but that's not surprising. We're still in this kind of partial lockdown. But when you look ahead at inflationary expectations using treasuries and tips and all the calculations you can do, inflationary expectations have moved up a bit. They are now uh, in the 2% range when you go out one year. And that's fine because that's the target. But it is something we absolutely keep a close eye on. Afsani, what about Rock Creek? Um, it's really interesting because both uh, Fed chairman and uh, and the European Central Bank are basically saying they don't, I don't want to say they don't care about inflation rates, but they're not concerned. They're not going to be moving to do anything different than what they've been doing. So that, I think, is very indicative of what's going on. In terms of, um, we also look at Japan as a really important um, sort of historical fact, how hard it has been 
to push up inflation. Obviously, the kind of numbers in terms of our stimulus plan that are we're talking about right now, plus what we will be talking about very soon, hopefully, which is on the infrastructure fund uh, front will be very important. But let's not forget, it's also the fact that inflation itself, the way we measure it, everyone knows, is problematic. Thank you so much yeah. to our roundtable of Steve Ratner of Will Advisors and Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek. Coming up, what the pandemic has meant for the least fortunate among us and why taking care of them isn't just right, it's a good investment. From Robin Hood Foundation CEO, Wes Moore. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The pandemic has hit the most vulnerable among us the hardest. And that's particularly true of people of color and even more so children of color. Wes Moore has spent his career addressing the needs of those who need it the most. Under his leadership, the Robin Hood Foundation has become one of the leading organizations in the country fighting poverty because it's right but also because it's good for our economy. He's been on the front lines of fighting the effects of COVID-19. The pandemic has been absolutely devastating. Uh, You know, the reality is if you just take a look at New York, if if you had breakfast with your family today, you're better off than 2 million of your neighbors. Literally, right now in New York City, at at the height of the pandemic, uh, in New York City alone, one in three parents of small children were skipping meals or reducing meals in order to feed their children. Uh, The pandemic has had absolutely devastating impacts on communities. And really where you see it is, it's on the communities where it was the most predictable that it was gonna have a devastating impact. It was the low-income communities where there's concentrated poverty. It was on communities of color. Also because when you consider the fact that how many jobs were lost, many of those jobs that were lost and particularly the ones that have not managed to come back these were oftentimes the jobs in hospitality. They were the restaurant workers. They were the the, hot, the, the hotel workers, uh, the ones who were oftentimes the low-wage entry-level jobs, but they were also the jobs that were keeping families overflowed. And so this has been a really complicated time for families in New York and also around the country. So, so taking that need that you know so well and have identified, put it against what we're now talking about with this $1.9 trillion package, because there's a lot of talk about whether it's targeted or not. Is it targeted? Is the money, if it was adopted tomorrow, would it get to the people who need it the most? 
It's it's uh it it is targeted yet not enough. Uh, and, and really what I mean by that as well is there are still nuances to the policies that are going to have a much bigger and much larger impact if we can actually focus on helping those who are the most vulnerable. One perfect example is I think about the child tax credit, where, you know, in, in, in 2018, and this was before COVID-19, about 12 million American children lived in poverty, right? Uh, and, the ch- and child poverty nationwide, the, the costs are between 800 billion and 1.1 trillion dollars. Again, we can't pretend that there is no cost to child poverty. The cost every year for child poverty is between 800 billion and 1.1 trillion. What we're looking right now with the with the with adjustments to the child tax credit is that if you look at the 2017 uh, uh, tax cuts and jobs act, it had a child tax credit provision, but it included an income phase in that really prevented over 50% of Black and Latino, Latino children from receiving the full benefit. So there are currently 24 million children in this country right now who are too deep into poverty to be able to receive the credit because of this income phase-in. And so when we're talking about the bill that's being proposed right now, the thing that could have the greatest impact on our population, the greatest impact on child poverty, is if you can actually make the child poverty tax credit fully refundable, and also in addition to make it fully refundable, you then make it permanent. By doing those two pieces to this bill, you would cut child poverty in half overnight, literally moving four and a half million children out of poverty overnight. And so we're hoping that as we're having conversations about reconciliation, about the real drill down of these type of policies, that we understand the role that those policies are going to be able to make and the adjustments on those type of credits are going to have a market impact in our communities. And obviously there's a moral dimension to this as we think about how many children in this very wealthy country are poor, live below the poverty line. There's also, as you suggest, an economic aspect. I mean, if you really could cut uh, childhood poverty in half, what would it mean for GDP, for example? Uh, I mean, you're, you're literally talking about adding adding trillions every single year onto 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 our GDP and the and the ability for us also to be able to unearth the massive amounts of intellectual capacity and intellectual talent that we are just completely squandering. You know, we think about, for example, what's happening, you know, within within education right now. You know, when 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 schools closed and in New York City alone, you know, 300,000 school children lacked access to devices. 300,000 children lacked access to school devices to be able to do their work. In Baltimore City, where I live right now, 61% of ninth graders are chronically absent. 61% of ninth graders are missing more than 30% of the school year. And so when we think about what that means, not just in terms of what it means for right now, but what does it mean for the future when 61% of your ninth graders are now unaccounted for? So we have to really be very serious about being able to put the resources in place right now to be able to protect for our tomorrow and to be able to protect for our day after. There are economic implications, societal implications on us getting this right right now. So, so Wes, we have to spend a minute or two on you because you just recently announced you'd be stepping down uh, in May, I believe, from, as CEO of Robin Hood Foundation. Give us a sense of what you feel you've accomplished there and what has yet to be done. Uh, well, I, I, I am so incredibly proud of, of the work we've been able to get done as, as, a, as a team and as a community, really, for the past four years. I mean, in the, in the past four years alone, uh, we've raised uh, $655 million as an organization uh, towards the poverty fight, including $230 million 
last year alone amid the pandemic, which is one of the highest fundraising totals in the organization's history. You know, we have, we have focused and rooted our work in communities and really created not just initiatives that are, for example, some of the first nationwide initiatives that we've ever created in the history of our organizations, investing in areas in Maryland and Pennsylvania and Illinois, uh, but then also even having a community lens and a community vote for the first time in terms of where our capital gets distributed and who, which organizations receive the, receive the, the, the revenue. Uh, we've advocated for policy for the first time and built a policy wing, uh, first time in the history of the organization where we were fighting for pay for nonprofits. We, are, we fought for a moratorium on evictions and utility shutoffs, activated a relief fund amid the pandemic and distributed over $65 million, mainly in emergency food and emergency cash assistance. So I'm incredibly proud of what we've been able to get done. Uh, and it's the right time for the organization to be able to have, uh, you know, have our, our new leader who's going to be able to build on that strength and foundation to be able to move us forward. And most importantly, it's just the right time for me and my family. Uh, you know, I've, uh, I was actually, you know, I, I, even though Robin Hood's offices are in New York, I never left Baltimore. Hmm. Uh, and I've been commuting back and forth. And, and I stopped keeping count of how many bedtimes I was missing. Hmm. And this moment, this time, really helped me to take a step back and think to myself, uh, there were too many moments, too many moments that I'll never get back that I wasn't a part of. That was Wes Moore, CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. Coming up, the move from combustion engines to electric vehicles. It's coming faster than we think. And GM CEO Mary Barra is investing $27 billion to get us there. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The pressure is on for automakers to go green. Investors, consumers, and even the new administration are pushing the electric car revolution forward, and Detroit is taking the hint. Ford announced that it will invest $22 billion in EVs through 2025, doubling its previous spending commitment. Here's Mark Kaufman of Ford. You know, we're seeing... In, in both Europe and China, there, there's a clear race for leadership there uh, in the EV space. GM's plans to go electric are even more ambitious. The 112-year-old automaker plans to go all electric by 2035 and will spend $27 billion on electric and autonomous cars by 2025. General Motors is our pick with an $8 price target, $120 bull case. I, I think yeah. it's, it's the one to own this year. That was Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas. Tesla has already overtaken traditional automakers like GM and Ford with its $772 billion market cap. But not all EV companies have the track record to support their recent surge. Blink Charging, which owns and operates charging stations, is up 2,200% over the past year, making Tesla's 420% stock rally look small. Blink has never posted an annual profit in its 11-year history. Here's Daimler CEO Ola Kalinius. The fact that the market uh, seems to put such a high valuation on EV business, I, I look upon that as good news, as an inspiration in our journey over uh, towards emission-free mobility and becoming an EV company eventually. EVs still have a long way to go before they replace gas-powered cars. According to the International Energy Agency, EVs make up just 3% of total cars sold globally in 2020. There are 280 million cars in the United States, 
and about 279 million of it run on gasoline. And I don't think people are going to throw away their cars. So I think it's, this is a longer evolution. That's Dan Jurgen from IHS Market. But GM CEO Mary Barr is determined to bring the EV future to us faster than we might think. And she thinks it's not just good for the environment, it's also good for her business. We're going to have a very positive year uh, in 2021, not only uh, from a financial perspective, but also the, the continued uh, acceleration of our EV and our AV business. We're really excited that uh, very shortly we're going to be launching the Chevrolet Bold EUV. And then, you know, uh, later this year, we'll be uh, serving the market with the GMC Hummer uh, EV. And then the, the Cadillac Lyric comes shortly after that, as well as tremendous progress being made from an uh, autonomous perspective as well. So we're really excited about the year, the growth opportunities that we have in front of us. Uh, and so it's a year of execution. And, you know, the, the issues with chips, this is a short-term mission. We'll work through it. Well, is General Motors basically in the same boat as everyone else? Or are there things that you can do to get something of an advantage over other automakers? Well, I think in general, this is an industry issue. Of course, we're working every single day with a cross-functional team to look for opportunities of how do we minimize the impact. So we'll continue to do that. You know, we did provide uh, the guidance uh, with a, a fairly wide range, uh, and we'll, we'll work it every day and provide updates as we go forward. Mary, as you said, you've got a lot of EV models coming out, including, as you say, the Bolt EUV and the Bolt EV new model coming out. Uh, you're investing $27 billion. This is part of a multi-year plan here. Uh, as a practical matter, what are the difficulties in that plan? And particularly, I want to talk about supply chains, things like uh, battery cells, some of the lithium issues. Do you anticipate possible problems with supply chains into your battery operation? Well, I think, you know, we're um, one of only two uh, uh, automakers that are doing cell manufacture in this country. We also are doing a tremendous amount of development on our own and our own GM R&D, as well as partnering with startups and, our, of course, our joint venture with LG Chem that is development as well as production. So, you know, we're working hard to make sure we have all the cells we need and we've worked, uh, you know, through the supply base to make sure we we do because we are, as, as we've talked about, we're accelerating our v EVs with 30 by 2025 um, and, you know, really covering the whole market. I, I did some rough math here. It might be wrong, but basically, if you made all of your vehicles as electric vehicles, uh, you would actually be using more than the total amount of lithium produced in the entire world by yourself. So does that mean we'll have less lithium used or are we going to find new sources of it? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're working on securing the supply that we need, but we're also working on development that uh, allows us to use less precious metals overall. So uh, it's kind of a yes and. Uh, both are, are things that we're working on. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we talk about things like the Bolt EV that's coming out, questions come up of profitability. Uh, we had Daimler, a competitor, come out and say by the end of the decade, they will be making as much or more out of electric vehicles as they do off of combustion engines. What's your profitability path for electric vehicles? Well, um, we have uh, set a goal for ourselves to have uh, margins from our auto business be at 10%. That's not changing. Uh, we don't talk about individual product line profitability, but I can tell you with the progress that we're making because of the work we do uh, with battery development, from our, our first generation Bolt EV to when we get to Ultium, we see about a 40% improvement, and we're already working on the next generation of our Ultium technology that should take it to a cumulative 60 or more. So, you know, I'm very confident that as we move forward and continue to make advancements. That was GM Chairman and CEO Mary Barra. Coming up, the pandemic reaches its one-year anniversary. We review what it's done to us and what long-term effects it will have. 
with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Experience uh, suggests that major pandemic events are events that take place somewhere between once every half century and once every century. The fact that this one has gone so far has to mean there's a substantial chance that it's the one for this half century or this century. And the events that take place that infrequently, the worst of them, kill a number of millions of people and quite possibly as many as 10 million people. That was special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers all the way back February 6th of 2020, a year ago now. And this was before, of course, there was a total shutdown in the American economy and it became rampant across the entire country. We welcome now Larry Summers back. And Larry, I know you don't want to take a victory lap. This is not good news. This is sad news. But you were right. You said millions could die. Millions have died. Could be as many as 10 million. We're a quarter of our way there globally right now. Give us a sense of what you think COVID-19 has done to this country and to the world so far. God, I wish I had been wrong. Uh, I think it's so far probably the most significant event of uh, the 21st uh, century. I think we're getting towards the end of it uh, in its acute phase, at least in the industrial world, but it's going to cast a big shadow forward. And I think the ultimate historical significance here is going to be that Asia basically managed this successfully and the West basically managed this unsuccessfully. And that is going to raise profound questions about the democratic uh, model, the functioning of uh, democratic uh, polities, And so I think the lessons we learn from this are uh, going to shape uh, whether uh, government by the people, government for the people does or does not uh, perish from uh, this earth. One looks at the magnitude of the contrast in the fraction of people who died in populations, of the extent to which kids were able to continue to go to school, 
of the length of time for which life was profoundly interrupted in a China or in a Japan or in a Korea uh, or even in a Pakistan and contrasts that with uh, what's happened in the United States or Spain or uh, the United Kingdom. And it's uh, deeply disturbing. And I think that may be the longest uh, legacy of this. Uh, beyond that, David, I think it's accelerated the trends that were either concerning us or exciting us before it happened. Um, we're all going to be working with much more IT uh, in our lives much sooner than we envisioned. Most of us thought of Zoom as having to do with how fast you were going um, <laughs> a year and a half uh, ago. That's not the first association any of us have with the word uh, Zoom uh, to today. It's going to change uh, how we work. It has been, like so many things, um, much uh, more painful uh, for those with less education and for those in the lower part of the income distribution than uh, for those who, for, who are fortunate. I think it's also uh, gonna change um, geography. Um, I was very worried for a variety of reasons about the prospects for New York City. I am much more concerned uh, today after the catalyst uh, to exit that uh, COVID uh, repre represented. Clearly education, whether it's higher education or grade school education has really been hit hard by this pandemic. It has not recovered far from it so far. Uh, how do you assess the loss that we're taking right now in educating our young people? Look, uh, as best we can tell, when you lose a year of education early in life, you get some of it back, but you don't get all of it back. And so the scar that is being placed on millions of children who really didn't get much schooling uh, this year is not a scar that's ever completely uh, going to heal. The president is absolutely right about the importance of getting people back to school safely. That is about vaccinating, that is about testing, that is about having appropriate uh, infrastructures. And I yield to no one in the importance I attach to doing this safely. But I have to say that uh, entrenched, uh, well, I'll say it, uh, teacher union interests that have resisted going back to school have really been putting their own material benefit ahead of uh, the interests of their kids. And that is not the best tradition of the teaching profession. Some cases they're absolutely right to be focused on what's necessary before we move uh, forward. But I'd sure like to see a much more collaborative spirit between teachers and school districts to get people back to school. I think the success we've had in higher education, uh, David, uh, in some ways my class this year by Zoom was better than it had been with me in person 
because uh, there was editing. There was the opportunity to bring in people from all over the world uh, to speak to uh, my class. I think America needs to launch a major initiative to bring what's in our universities, which is one of our great sources of national strength, uh, to the entire world. And I hope that will be a continuing legacy for President Biden. So, Larry, let me uh, wrap this up by trying to find a happy note. Uh, when I practiced law, we had this saying, when you're writing a difficult brief, if you can't fix it, then feature it. Is there a way to feature some of the difficulties we've had? And that is to say, to recognize the fact there has been a failure of competency, as you've talked about repeatedly on the part of our government, failure in various aspects, and to be something of a wake-up call, a clarion wake-up call that actually could help us turn around some things that, let's be honest, needed to be turned around long before the pandemic. I think we've got some examples. Look, what we've done with vaccines in terms of producing them and developing this fast is a miraculous tribute to the combination of science, intellectual leadership, and powerful companies and uh, markets. And that gives us something uh, to build on. I think we've had a wake-up call that you need civil, expert, serious, thoughtful people leading a society rather than what we had before. And while I've got some disagreements on nuances of economic policy with uh, President Biden's uh, team, isn't it remarkable that we're talking about the optimal size of stimulus packages rather than talking about possible impeachable offenses by uh, the president? Isn't it remarkable that we're worried about economic officials with the wrong multiplier estimates rather than economic officials lining uh, their own pockets? Isn't it uh, remarkable that we're talking about and including every American in every group. And yeah, there are arguments about ways in which we might be doing it the right way or the wrong way, but isn't that a sea change from pitting one American group against uh, another group? So I think that this has been a kind of wake up call and it is starting to reawaken the best impulses in Americans and therefore in America. And there you have the positive note. Thank you so much to special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. When does irrational exuberance become rational? Exuberance was breaking out all over the markets this week, but it's not always the fundamentals that are making money for people. The GameStop Reddit phenomenon moved on to cannabis as Tilray was up 200% already in the month of February with the Reddit wind at its back. And Bitcoin, don't get me even started about Bitcoin. And if we're talking fundamentals, what exactly are fundamentals for a made-up cryptocurrency? And then we come to Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We started the week with the greatest of all time proving it by winning his seventh Super Bowl and being named its most valuable player for the fifth time. When it comes to Brady and the Buccaneers, you have to say the fundamentals are there. An ageless quarterback whose arm seems to be as strong as ever. So you'd have to say that Tampa Bay exuberance was far from irrational. But then, by midweek, 
Even Brady seemed to get carried away as he rode his $2 million yacht in the celebratory parade and then gasp through the Vince Lombardi trophy from his boat over the water to his Bucks tight end Cameron Brait in the boat behind him. Not surprisingly, Brait made the catch on top of his three receptions in the Super Bowl itself. And if the trophy had gone to the bottom, Brady does have six more at home after all. But still, in this odd time of exuberance in the face of a pandemic, you have to wonder whether this you only live once trade may be going just a bit too far. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.